Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guest as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Stuart. I am delighted to have you this morning on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I have my, uh, this is actually my first official full cup of coffee in my hand. I've, I've sipped on a, a half a cup to get myself warmed up this morning. And uh, and actually was was uh, refreshing some refreshing my memory of some of your work, and so I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. From from my readers, as as you all get to know Stuart this morning, um, Stuart, you might recall I shared with you that I briefly cited your work in my first book um, about the uh, nonprofit first way of thinking, and so I'm certainly looking forward to that perhaps coming up this morning. Uh, but before we do, before we uh, dive into our conversation. How about we just uh, ask you to introduce yourself? Well, sure, Jason. I love talking about myself. So basically, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm taking on a position as affiliate professor for nonprofit management at Baldwin-Wallace University, which is in Berea, Ohio, which is in uh, greater Cleveland. And um, my expertise is in nonprofit management. I study it, um, uh, research it, practice it, Perform it, um, and part of that uh, milieu includes fundraising and what I what I like to think of as advancing institutions. And uh, toward that end, um, I wrote a book with uh, my colleague Jeffrey Brudney um, on nonprofit partnerships, which is where I really you know spun this idea of nonprofit first. And um, concept really has to do with offering perspectives from the 
uh, objective of delivering the nonprofit side of a situation and in management and strategy as opposed to others. You know, Stuart, I think you're probably my first. Oh, I've had, I, I, I take that back. You might only be the, I can probably count them on a single hand. Let's say that. I can count the number of Cleveland voices that I've had here on the podcast. Uh, as I might have shared with you, my folks lived in suburban Cleveland for a number of years, uh, as, as, as it just happened to have been a stop on my dad's career after I left home. But um, what does it mean to raise money in Cleveland, Ohio? Well, uh, probably like anywhere else, it's a challenge. Um, and <laughs> one, one must be clever. Uh, yeah, but also um, very smart about it. And um, anyone that's done executive director work will tell you how difficult these jobs are and how um, difficult it is to sync things up outside the organization as well as inside the organization. And um, this is no different. We're, we're really fortunate. We have a lot of foundations here, big foundation community, long history of philanthropy. Um, you know, the original United Way concepts came out of Cleveland, you know, um, so there's a long tradition of nonprofit-like activity here, uh, which is why there's three universities that offer nonprofit academic programs. Yeah, I, I, I think I recall that. And I, I recall that about the United Way that, that probably got on my radar at some point in my, uh, and I don't, I don't know where that came up, but I'll have to remember that for my students as well. So, Stuart, we ask our guests to come on here with a big idea, bold opinion. You and I met, I don't know, about four or six weeks ago and talked about what some of those ideas might be. And we really got each other warmed up. And it was like, it was like throwing a basketball back and forth. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation, but you've said you've given it a lot of thought. And, and I don't even know where you're going to go. So what do you got for us this morning? Well, right before I started this gig here at the university, um, I was the executive director of the um, National Center on Nonprofit Enterprise, which is an organization that came out of a university setting uh, that focused on helping nonprofit executives and uh, stakeholders and leaders make wise decisions uh, using economics and science and logic and things like that. And um, in part of doing that work, I became enthralled with the concept of resilience and how organizations can stack themselves, be organized and arranged in a way that, you know, when you have something like COVID disrupting the marketplace, that they don't go out of business. I mean, there was a study in Ohio um, in the middle of all that that said something to the effect that... Um, 20% of all nonprofits had gone out of business <laughs> and 40% were thinking about it. So um, one could understand why resilience might be a theme for nonprofit managers and, and I would say fundraising professionals. Um, so um, resilience would, might be the emphasis of the conversation we could have. Um, and I'd like to start with um, what I think that fundraising really is about. Uh, because I think given the recent uh, dilemmas for nonprofit organizations, um, it's not what we, it's not, it, the old models don't, don't work. They don't satisfy the needs of the field. 
Does that sound like a good place to start? Yeah, and and I'll sort of um, uh, I'll raise you on uh, sort of why that's particularly so why that's particularly intriguing. Let me finish that sentence. Why that's particularly of interest to me, and I don't know that we've had a. I think we've probably had a number of guests that have talked about the topic of resilience and helped us. I don't know that anybody has sort of necessarily done a deep dive into sort of what that means in the nonprofit context. But I remember during the pandemic in particular, I was reading a number of complexity authors um, and others who talk about sort of why things fall apart, you know, why, you know, and, and a lot of what these authors and, and at the same time, you know, right in the middle of the pandemic, there was a lot as is, as is oftentimes the case, I kept seeing the word nonprofit and the word collapse sort of put together in headlines. So you'd see, you know, somebody on the cover of some major newspaper saying that a third or a half or something of the nonprofit sector was going to collapse. And ultimately, it comes down to that question is how, you know, if in fact an organization is going to collapse really becomes a question of of how resilient they are. And it oftentimes, I guess, comes down to a question of design. Am I right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, design is right. The, uh, the right, the right comment, right concept. Yeah. So many organizations um, come together because of an urgent, emergent need. There's something in society that um, neither the marketplace or government is capable of accommodating. It's not profitable, or it's beyond the scope of government. And so a nonprofit will come together, and it'll come together basically because volunteers volunteer their time and agree to work together to to partner or collaborate, and they form an organization. And, and just doing that is difficult. That takes a lot of energy and a lot of agreeing. Um, and not all the people that will agree and come together have the capacity to do what board members, we hope board members do. So fundraising, is in, it's intrinsically tied to your board. And you can do um, transactional things like write grant proposals, enter into contract agreements for services, um, maybe do an annual fund, have a bake sale if you're a little teeny organization. But none of those are really strategic unless they're part of some bigger concept. And the lining up that I started the conversation with um, has to begin with that board. And um, I, we don't, you know, this is arguable. Uh, but my experience has been that um, a lot of the challenges start in nonprofit management and leadership start with board collaborations. And um, to me, if, if that's the building block for fundraising, and I don't even like the term fundraising, I prefer institutional advancement. Uh, yeah. that's, a bit high, that's a bit highfalutin. And, you know, <laughs> a, a small nonprofit doesn't think in terms of itself as an institution. It thinks it's delivering services and doing public goods or uh, is formed for the common goods. And, you know, it's, it's a bit of a jumble of concepts that make fuzzy what the focus of an organization should be and whether or not it's actually, you know, got value for the community. Well, Stuart, you know, my, my business partner and I talk about one of the challenges that we encounter in the in terms of uh, working with prospective clients is, is a lot of our competing firms are really into this tactical space. And, and, and I suspect that this in some way, the, our experience sort of boots on the ground identifying clients aligns with perhaps what your critique is here as we venture down this path. 
in that <clears throat> a lot of organizations are so sort of entrenched in this ta- tactical, what Michael, my business partner, refers to as a tactical mindset. They're, they're, they're constantly sort of thinking about galas, golf ter- tournaments, you know, capital campaigns. These are all tactics that achieve a goal, but they've never sort of stepped, you know, they've never, uh, fundraising for the most part, <clears throat> going back to the formation of the organization, has always been just an afterthought. And it's just been a tactical sort of, okay, how are we going to meet this particular need, this particular moment in time? And and it's never been given that, you know, I mean, how, how in the world do you get to a resilient, sustainable sort of strategy that can that can weather the the ups and downs, the unpredictable, et cetera, et cetera, if you don't give it some meaningful thought? Am I right? Right. So you preempted me with the resilience part of it, because I think that's exactly the difference between before and now. So if one uses the frame, um, what does our organization really do? What's its core function? Um, what do we have to do to make sure that that continues? You know, that those are strategies, right? Um, not tactics. Um, yeah. Then maybe you look at fundraising. Is it very fragile, impermanent, temporary, transactional type of activity. So it also depends on where an organization is in its life cycle. So if it's, uh, you know, we, we that language gets confused all the time. If you're starting out, then maybe what you do is you get a startup grant right. or you have a startup contract. And that's one kind of, you know, putting your stake in the ground as an organization and, and your sustainability. But then you never really stop worrying about that because you know, that's got a finite life to it. And um, if the thinking then goes, well, what, what do we have? What kind of capacities do we have and competencies that we can um, build revenue streams off of? Um, then, then we're kind of tipping our organization into more of a social enterprise than a, a nonprofit intermediary organization. And um, this isn't just theory. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a practice. So you create an organization. You want it to be able to withstand changes in funding, policy, uh, you know, behaviors that are uh, forced on you as an organization, board transitions, board function and lack of function, uh, problems that arise, dilemmas that arise in management. Uh, That's a lot. And uh, to expect a, a a thin thread of fund development to sustain an organization, that's, that, that, that speaks against resilience to my mind. And um, I, that, that's why I would think about advancement. So as you form your organization, let's say if you're a brand new one, but if you're a more mature one and you've been operating for a while, it's what kinds of strategies to follow that generate revenue that has some predictability or replicability and uh, are those or are those functions things that add cost? So um, it's an interesting to me. It's interesting because it's fundraising is kind of the entree to all the nonprofit management concepts, and um, there there are sixteen concepts right now. There are more, I'm sure, coming. But right now, the Nonprofit Academic Centers Council, uh, which has kind of taken on the responsibility of organizing the knowledge of of the sector for nonprofit management, they have 16. Stuart, can we go back to the the first comment you made 
when it when it comes to sort of this decision and this you know making an intentional effort to get to resilience and build this into your your fundraising efforts you started with the board and one of the things that i tend to be uh vocal about and particularly uh concerned about as of late is this idea that we have professionalized the field and forgotten that all these organizations started with what I oftentimes refer to as highly capable volunteers. We have highly capable volunteers who organized all of these organizations. These organizations generally do not originate without someone gathering a number of people voluntarily around a table and saying, let's do this. I mean, that's the story. <laughs> that's the story of the story of all of them. Um, and, and yet we seem to have forgotten that. And I seem to think that that board you're referring to is is a built-in component to that. I mean, that seems like an to me that's an essential. Even the consulting models we use at Responsive, that's a, that's an essential component, an essential ingredient in sort of how we help organizations build resilience is is a deep appreciation for that volunteer. Oh yes, uh, one could spend all their time managing the board and guiding the board. And part of that has to do with, if we're you know, talking about life cycles again, and we're looking at an, uh, a new organization, the people that come together may have the passion and interest, otherwise why else would they be there? And some sort of self-interest in, in seeing the endeavor go, but they all have different skills. Some, some offer uh, merely their la labor, Others may be there for fundraising and fund getting, um, but tying that all together um, is a real, a real dilemma, a real challenge. And um, if an organization is, you know, one person's staff or minimal staff, uh, that person is got way too much to do to run the organization. So um, resilience is a frame that can be used that everyone would be staring at the same picture at, that they might be able to agree, well, we'd like to build a resilient organization. Uh, board member A may have the ability to tap uh, networks in the funding community, philanthropy, and wow, what a home run that might be. They have to be willing to do it, and they have to be willing to advocate and put some real skin in the game. So one of the Shortcuts is, well, just write a check, <laughs> make an annual donation, and then you're off the hook. And that's not sufficient. Uh, if you're looking at resilience, it's, well, how do you replicate that? And it's not necessarily asking your friends for more money. It could be being an institutional advocate. That's why I like to look at the concept of fundraising in this bigger picture of, of uh, advancement. So what do I have to do to help advance this organization? Not criticize it. <clears throat> although that may be necessary, um, not hold it accountable, although that's necessary, um, but doing the things that make it stronger and resilient. So in my, my way of looking at things, that's a very different frame to understand what you're doing as a board member. And perhaps that's a way to sync things up with all the diverse talents and individuals that may be at that table initially. Then the other Part of that is, let's say your organization's a little bit more mature, like I said before. Um, now it's replicating those behaviors and creating the traditions in the organization. And somebody has to buy into that. That has to be important to people. 
Otherwise, they're just attending a committee meeting or me- meetings and not really thinking about the organization's health and well-being because, you know, they're not paid to do it. It's no one's job description to do that. It, well, it is. It's the executive directors who's also trying to run the programs, raise other money, right. you know, meet with the government agencies. Uh, right. <laughs> if there's members, God help them because then <laughs> membership is its own thing. I'm, I'm sure you've, you're from, you, you might be friends or you've perhaps read her book. There's a woman that wrote a book that I read early in my fundraising career called the mission myth, I think is what it's called. And it's that it's this idea that I, that I think is probably inherent in that, you know, is one of the primary weaknesses in perhaps those first two, um, Certainly in that initial sort of infancy stage and, and, and lingers on even in that adolescent stage of an organization's life cycle. And it's the idea that the mission itself will sort of make up for some of this unwillingness, lack of due diligence, whatever we sort of want to call it, that they're not, you know, uh, I work with a lot of private schools, for example, and a lot of them I, I explained I was I had a meeting with a board member and a, the CEO and, and another individual recently. And I said, you know, these organizations go through phases and they're they're very much focused on what it is they're delivering. Then they're focused on the leadership dynamic. And only then after those two bases are sort of covered, do they think about, OK, we actually have to pay for this sort of stuff um, right. is. Is is that part of it that they're just convinced implicitly that the mission is so grand and so extraordinary that it'll make up for? Uh, I mean, that's the argument in her book. Do you concur with that? Yeah, I, I do. I, I agree with that. I think the mission is essential to forming an organization and to keeping people at the table. Yeah. And also for messaging and yeah. uh, creating the brand, essential, all all essential. Yes. That's different than running the organization <laughs> and yes. succeeding and creating a durable, replicable budget. <laughs> so um, they're not that those things are at odds with one another. It's just that one should not preclude the other. And um, my exposure to social enterprise has been, uh, well, you're an institution, whether you think it you are or not. <laughs> You may, you may be a small, teeny thing, but you actually have uh, a foundation on which uh, people can come to you and, and seek answers to problems they're having or to have work done. And as an institution, uh, your mission your mission kind of creates the turf you're on, the geography of the turf. But at that point, then we have some common, common ways to create uh, a strong institution. And... Fundraising, I'm going to come back to that, is one of the tools in the toolkit, but it's um, it's the smallest. <laughs> to me, the fundraising um, should be uh, for where the innovation comes in, the dollars to create new stuff, not to operate your organization. After a certain point of time, if your funding model relies annually on filling that gap with fundraising, um, I think that's wrong. I think that's wrong-headed. That's not creating the conditions for a resilient organization. So where do you want I, – I remember that when you and I were bantering around some of these ideas before. Wh- where do you want those primary revenue streams to come from if fundraising, if charitable giving isn't that primary source or one of those primary sources? 
Well, I think it's an important source, but I don't think it's the operating source. Yes, uh, right. That's right. We talked about I, that. Yeah. I, th- I think we, we, we rely on the fundraising to do creative stuff or to hire people that actually build the organization. And that's kind of the focus. Okay. Now, that could be, for some people, that could be adding to your programming or creating greater capacity to create things that can be counted by others, you know, like total hours raised, um, number of meals served, um, you know, uh, resolution of social problems or issues. That's for some organizations where that may make sense. But I, I think if, if the revenue coming in is, um, you know, not sufficient to sustain the organization's core operations, core functions, then as an institution, it's, it's weak. It, it's, it's weak. And then I think you as a consultant would know about all the challenges of weak organizations. And then the issues tend to cascade and amplify. And eventually what you have is a mess. Um, and at that point, it's a question of, well, is this organization, uh, does it have enough critical mass to continue or should it be part of another organization or should it just go out of business? And those are real, uh, real outcomes. And to me, the, the initial building block is how it's how it's funded and what you're relying on. So I, let me just make this last point. Um, so um, in getting the job that I have now at the university, um, I was uh, able successfully, I believe, to persuade them to think of the whole university as a social enterprise. So, yes, it's about educating students and being a pillar in the community and stand, having values and having its mission providing research opportunities for faculty and enhancing careers and all that other stuff that universities do. But at the same time, because it's an important institution, an important actor in the local community, it it also can produce value, public value, uh, maybe by not adding cost, but by producing additional, uh, you know, outputs that create revenue. And uh, that's been, that's a successful argument. Now, this is a mature institution. It's well down the life cycle pathway. Um, and I think big institutions here in Cleveland, Cleveland uh, Art uh, Museum of Art comes to mind, but also many of the social service agencies are uh, cleverly look for ways to generate revenue without adding costs. So that's, I don't know that that's a new way of thinking, but I think that's one of those mature, those concepts for mature organizations that really don't make it into the discourse. You know, that's an interesting – so one of my one of my observations about the way that some of – some organizations or some voices in our space seem to be sort of wanting to call on philanthropy, charitable giving, fundraising to sort of step it up and play a role that honestly I don't know that it's intended to play. I, I, I tend to want to think that fundraising can be more primary in terms of its – uh, revenue capability, but I also don't know that we're approaching it. I hope this makes sense. I don't know if these organizations or these the the, the advice that's being given um, is is consistent with uh, with the way that charitable giving works and the way that you're you're describing. I think the way that you're describing fundraising, where it sort of lets us down is when it starts to function like a subsidy that will never be an adequate subsidy. Um, 
you know, subsidies, you know, typically when we're counting on some sort of subsidy, we're not generally getting it. It, 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 it it's almost design. It's almost by design going to let us down. Um, and, it, and, and I think when we think about it, I think when we think about it through the lens that you're, you're encouraging us to think through it, if we look at it a more, a little more critically, um, I don't know, you've really got me thinking, Stuart. <laughs> but, well, be, if you want, if you have an organization that wants to do something and that's all it wants to do, yeah, you know, uh, there's a contract, uh, the government's letting you, you can, if you organize quickly, you can perform these functions, whatever it is, meals for afternoon programs, yes. a program in a school system, something like that. That's not, to me, that's not really an organization. That's a program and I would, or a project. And I, I would, I would look for a safe harbor for that organization. If, if you're, if your concept is that it's a long-term concern, or, 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 then how, how is it going to sustain itself? And can it withstand shakes changes in the economy, which are inevitable and unpredictable? So to do to do that, to my to my mind, one must look at fundraising as, like I said, a tool in the toolkit. Um, and may, maybe it's temporary uh, and short term, but there are longer term concepts in which people that. Uh, can help make the arrangements engaged. So your stakeholders, your board stakeholders, they have an idea. Oh, um, I, I'm a, I have a relationship with, you know, I don't know, Alcoa Corporation. That's in Pennsylvania, right? Yes, so you, yes, you, it you is. Do, you have, you, you, you have a relationship, but you can't just ask them for money. I mean, I guess you could, but it doesn't. That's not. That's not what we're talking about. It's what's the relationship, and then oh, by the way since I'm on board and I have the relationship, I will facilitate that. And that may bear fruit in five years. Okay. But go back to your example of the, 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 the organization that has, has decided itself to be an organization, but it's actually behaving, but it actually in in reality is just a project or a, 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 it, 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 and it's being subsidized by the government. And I think what, I think what some of us are not thinking about because it takes additional bandwidth to sort of think this way. Uh, They're not taking the time to sort of step back and realize that when the government backs off and stops funding that program for you to then count on charitable giving to step in and fund that the rules of the game have changed. That original subsidy you were getting from the government played by one set of rules and your relationship with a charitable donor or a number of donors is not the same. It's probably going to be less predictable. Um, and, and to use your words, it's going to be more, it's going to need to be more exploratory, more long-term. Um, is that sort of, that, that's the, I, I, I'm, you got me messing with my paradigms here. Well, right. So I liked where you're headed with that. So, so yes, um, to me, to me, what you've just described is a cause for uh, finding a safe harbor. <laughs> Since the environment has changed sufficiently and your organization was reliant on a certain revenue stream, which is no longer there or the rules around it would have changed. Yeah. The organization either adapts or it goes and finds a partner that's doing the work that, you know, this former organization can support. And then either through, a, I don't know, a federation, some kind of combination of partnership, 
collaboration, federation, union, you know, absorption, merger. What uh, the your, your organization then has kind of a, a continued existence. Uh, it's just part of something else. The other way is well, that's when your board, uh, if it's proactive and strategic, thinks about advancing the institution and how is it funded and is it resilient. And uh, resilience, um, it, it, it's both a simple and a complicated concept. Yeah. So uh, we could talk for a whole hour about that. But I, I think that the, the idea is durability, uh, succession, traditions, and, you know, what is it that you have that makes you strong or weak? And can you do something about it or should you? And uh, fundraisers typically are in the point of that the tip of that spear because that's one of the few places in the whole organization where you can assign a number and determine success or lack of success. So I would look at it. I would ask people that are in the field and executive directors in particular, who I know are juggling a lot of balls and struggling with these issues, that um, resilience would be the way to start, you know, your assessment. Just when push came to shove, just how how would we get through a difficult time? Are our revenue streams um, durable? Um, if I'm going to rely on fundraising, what's that a bridge to? And the bridge might be being attractive enough to a suitor. That could be that could be what the point of it is. You know, you raise a lot of money and then all of a sudden you're looking pretty attractive to American Red Cross, you know, <laughs> or some other organization that is, you know, mission compatico with you. Okay. So and 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 what I what my interpretation of what is playing out in our nonprofit sector today is we have a lot of organizations that started out delivering on some of these very primary, very uh, narrowly, you know, a, a, a project to use a, just, just one exclusive project, maybe a, a handful of them, but they were never, they were never conceived of in a way that would say that we're going to deliver on a, you know, a, a comprehensive package of services or something. And they probably never saw themselves necessarily as, as having to be absorbed into that safe harbor that you're talking about. You know, they never thought that they would have to become a part of the, we've seen this actually play out in my local community where the, where the YWCA has become that safe harbor for a number of smaller organizations that essentially fit that project definition. The, the, and, and even when you, even when you hear community leaders referring to our local YW, you'll hear them refer to it as sort of this complex, Sometimes they're saying it in the affirmative and sometimes not so much, but they're basically talking about how the YW has sort of absorbed a number of these initiatives that's, that were in these startup modes but couldn't sustain themselves. And so the YW becomes that place of resilience. Um, and, and I think what you're saying to us, Stuart, which is insightful, is that it's only once you sort of arrive in that safe harbor place where you can start to really think carefully and critically about what you would, ref- you know, about what we're referring to as institutional advancement, because you're actually creating a complex institution now. Right. So, so I guess this is the heart of what nonprofit first means. So if you are in that role and you really believe in your mission and you think it's making, it has efficacy, 
It's just the structure of the organization isn't sustainable or resilient. It's what are the steps you can take to better position the organization to fulfill that mission. And sometimes it's not being independent and autonomous. Uh, sometimes it is. Uh, and that's one of the mm. things that you weigh as an, you know, as a, you want your board to weigh that. But it's, it's the challenge is that, again, it, it has to do with the sophistication and the age of the organization. If if you have been around for 50 years or and you've had uh, a brand, that's worth something. Um, that's negotiable, tradable with a third party. You know, that's that's your autonomy. Um, if you're reliant on fundraising, then you're going to be fulfilling the mission of the people you're raising the money from. Um, and to me. That's not nonprofit first. That's more about them than it is about, you know, your organization and fulfilling its mission. I mean, I, we're in pretty deep, actually, if you think about it. So these these aren't just theoretical concepts. These are things people in jobs, difficult jobs, wrestle with if they have the time. And uh, or bo- board leadership that will reflect on. Well, what's the point of this organization? How do we make it stronger? How do we, how do we advance it through all the revenue sources? And some of which could be our standing as an institution because, you know, we have a marketing department or we have a marketing staff. Is there anything that we can do to leverage that for additional? Re- I mean, there are just a myriad of ways to do it. But, but Stuart, and I've had these, I've had these, I've had these individuals here on the podcast, you know, probably every Every fourth or fifth or sixth conversation that I've had over the last couple of years has been centered around this sort of this resentment. Tell me if this sort of makes sense to you. It's this resentment that the organization, that smaller organization, that project focused or has begun to they've conjured up this resentment towards the charitable donor because they're not behaving like that government subsidy that they got during those startup years. Right. Do you follow what I'm saying? And so they're ex- they're expecting the charitable donor to behave and to have a relationship that's completely inconsistent with the way that relationship's supposed to work, and it's and it's conjuring up sort of a this this entire sort of army of voices that are saying all these donors need to start behaving a particular way, but in some ways all they're really describing is this coercive relationship that we would have with maybe Washington or or, you know, my local or, or Harrisburg or something. Um, right. And it's not consistent with, with the way that relationship's supposed to work. Right. Well, it's, uh, there's difference between grant making and uh, uh, contracts where you're a um, principal agent or uh, uh, philanthropy. Uh, very, very different things. But in each case, your organization, your nonprofit is agreeing to give a, a little bit of its autonomy to receive that money. And if that's not acceptable to you, then that's a strategic decision to make. And there are there's rights and responsibilities to these strategic decisions, one of which is if that's how we're going to earn money, we're going to have to bend to accommodate the partner. If if we're an equal partner and we negotiate, we negotiate that relationship, then we're agreeing to um, take our share, give them their share. And then there's a, a third entity, which is the agreement. Um, 
this is what my book's about. But yeah. but the, the the idea that um, you know they if you're the, the idea that the nonprofits resent it, I, I get that, I understand that, but that's the price you pay. Not the not the not that the nonprofits resent that the, the, the donor. I mean, the nonprofit is resentful of the fact that the donor won't behave. Right. And, well, and why it, would the donor has their mission too? <laughs> right. <laughs> so there there are different colors of money, and some money is more expensive than other money. So when you make an arrangement with a donor who has their purpose, their mission, you know, yeah. it's fair. It's their mission. Um, and you have to help them accommodate their mission. That's a price that you pay for that money. And if it's not acceptable, that's a strategic decision. And if you're, if you as an organization have bear that resentment, then um, you know, then it may be time to figure out other revenue streams or seek a safe harbor and let somebody else worry about those relationships. Yeah, I've never, I've, I've, I've. It's it's fascinating to hear you use that word safe harbor as sort of an institutional uh, advancement move um, that that is perhaps never thought about. Um, and 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 let's before we wrap up, I I, I do want to pay I, I do want to give some credence to this concept that I like I said I put in my first book that I think is sort of a lot of your thinking here. So this notion of nonprofit first thinking. Um, can you, can you sort of unravel that? Uh, can we take the, the, the last 10 minutes here and unravel that as a concept? Because that's the framework for which this careful and critical thinking is sort of emerging from Stuart. And I have found it very helpful because I'm oftentimes trying to help clients differentiate between, okay, that's a marketplace way of thinking, or that's a, you know, that's a public administrative way of thinking, and you need to think like a, a nonprofit organization within the nonprofit sector. Right. Um, so actually, you set, you set up this conversation great with your comment. <laughs> so so um, to, to me, the nonprofit thir- first is about power and authority in society. And a nonprofit organization, depending upon your point of view, is an intermediary. Uh, even if it's just formed to provide a service, that service wouldn't get performed without the benefit of the nonprofit. So from that standpoint, nonprofits have a perspective and a concern about how they have to perform, what they have to do, and how they can you know, sustain their operation. So nonprofit first is, um, as the executive director, we're going to enter into these relationships as an intermediary because, you know, that's what a partnership is, their relationships. And if a nonprofit is an intermediary, they're connecting a user with a funder or an, a bigger part of society. So those nonprofits succeed and fail for reasons that are uniquely their own. They're not business. They're not government. They have this amalgam of their governance or volunteers who may or may not be aligned or have skills or have connections. Or in a perfect world, they do, and the organization works great, um, and there are a few dilemmas. Uh, but mostly, um, to me, the power and authority is the nonprofit enters into agreements and engages in revenue as an equal. Uh, maybe, not, maybe not as the uh, dominant partner, but as you know, on par with the government and the business and the philanthropists and uh, right, you know, the grant makers, and that gives it 
the ability to, to me, make wise decisions and be resilient. Otherwise, you get dragged along by events. And as we, I said, you, you, your organization may or may not have the capacity to be independent and autonomous. And then I would seek a safe harbor if I really believed in the mission. If it was worth it and the board members were for it, that's what I would look at. And I don't think that's part of the discourse. I don't. I think most organizations see themselves as autonomous actors as long as they keep the money coming in. I think they do, but I don't think that they're starting at a fundamental level like you and I are discussing and what I have been very uh, – ever since sort of coming across your work, Stuart, um, you know, and, and in this current writing project that I'm currently wrapping up, this idea of uh, what some academics call theory borrowing. They're constantly sort of grasping for theory that comes from other, you know, halls of art, you know, other – other colleges, if you will. And what you're advocating for, you know, my graduate work was in a nonprofit management program. I was that program as best they could was built around the idea that the nonprofit sector owes itself its own sort of hall of theory and thought and, and critical, critical thinking. And, and we haven't necessarily, a lot of people who are running our organizations haven't sort of grown up to that place where they acknowledge what you're advocating for, right? Well, they don't fit. Those theories don't fit, right? So yes. in, in, a, in a big sense, they do, if you're looking at 50,000 feet, you know, you should do these best practices. But on the ground, when you're working with volunteers, as I said, who uh, may or may not be in sync, have skills that you need, you're not, you have no authority over them. They have authority over you. <laughs> and that creates dysfunction. And so, as I said earlier, you could spend all your time as an executive director managing your board, which you don't really have the authority to do. <laughs> so, so if that dilemma doesn't get resolved, to me, that's a sign that you you're, you may not have you don't have an organization. You got a program or a project. And is that is that to to sort of wrap this up? Is that one of those? Uh, I'd have to go back and look at some of the writing that I've read of yours, but is is the is the necessity or the uh, the presence of the the volunteer one of those distinguishing features? It has to be. It's one of those distinguishing features that that separates our body of theory, our our sort of globe of thought, differently than the marketplace and say the government. We're 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 the nobody else really relies on uh, volunteers like we do. That's right. Well, it's uh, this has to do with civil society and, and why uh, we think in this country it's a very important aspect of American life. Yes, 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 yes you're the right. The fact that people people come together to voluntarily solve a problem, so we don't have to rely on government to do that, and we know business won't do it if there's no profit in it for them. So this is that's that intermediary space, and that's our role as a non as nonprofit professionals. And uh, where that hits, where the real tangible place where that hits the ground is the ground is with the revenue, and the fundraising, and the advancement. So, in in, in my view, you'd want an organization that's always on the move. Its its trajectory is advancing. It's it's not standing still. It's adapting. It's flexible. It's reliable. It's trustworthy, right? And that means shifting with currents in the in society. And ultimately, uh, being resilient. That's one of the measures. If after all of that occurs, is the organization still exist? 
then it's achieved a level of resilience. And I, I don't believe that's the way most people look at it. I think they're focused on the day-to-day, paying the bills, creating cash flow, not the long-term you know, sustainability of the organization. Stuart, we lose our listeners at right at about 45 minutes, which is where we've sort of landed here today. I think there's probably enough in our conversation today that has probably <laughs> probably pricked the interest of some of our listeners. And um, and while I suspect some of our listeners are familiar with your work, I suspect there's others that are not. Um, how do they how do they find your work? Where do they go? Well, um, I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm Googleable. Um, I, I know I'm in, on several uh, um scholarly lists yes um my e- you're welcome to email me if you want s mendel at bw.edu real simple um i have a book from indiana university press with jeff rudney as i mentioned partnerships a nonprofit way i've written a book on fundraising in universities um all of it's out there and uh you know, welcome to discourse Yes, and Stuart will also put the uh, the, the nonprofit per first. Uh, I think there's a, there's a very useful white paper that was produced uh, by someone. I don't know who that was published by, but that was very helpful. That's probably the first thing that I found of yours a number of years ago. Um, and we'll make sure to put that in the show notes as well. I appreciate that. Thank you. This is great. Yeah, Thanks Stuart, it has certainly been a pleasure. You're always welcome back. Okay, thank you. Thank you all. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.